Uh, today we are into the third week of our Call of God series, the month-long look at the book of Jonah. And Jonah, the book of Jonah is one of the best-known stories in the Bible. And, and Barry talked about that the first week, that almost everybody says they know something about this book. And well, actually what most people say is they know something about the story of Jonah and the whale. And we know that that's not precisely true. There's no whale. There is a great fish, but there's no whale in this story. And as Barry so skillfully showed us in the first two weeks of the series, this book wasn't written simply to tell us this amazing story of Jonah being swallowed by a great big fish and then living in the fish's belly for three days. The, that aspect of the story only takes up a couple of verses, to be honest, and in the book has four chapters. No, as Barry showed us, this book is actually a parable. And can I, can I just stop for a second and say, I know some of you are frightened by us using the word parable when we talk about the book of Jonah. Parable is a biblical term, or actually was a term in the culture of the first century that included all sorts of literary genres and riddles and all kinds of things. Parable to us, because Jesus spoke in so many parables, we're worried that we're talking about a made up thing when we use the word parable. But parables themselves could come out of the events of real life, or they could come out of the imagination of the author. But parables were always created specifically to get people thinking about deeper truths and moral lessons. And this particular parable was meant to get people thinking about three specific matters. This one was meant to get people thinking about their attitudes towards people that they don't consider worthy caring about at all. And this story was given to us to get us thinking seriously about whether we will obey God even when we know obeying will be difficult. And for the third reason it was given to us was to get us thinking particularly about the graciousness of our God and His grace towards those who seem like they wouldn't deserve it. Now, if you've not heard both of Barry's first two sermons in this series, I strongly suggest that you find the time to do so, but be prepared as you listen to them because both of his sermons will, as parables are supposed to do, get you thinking. And today's passage, which is chapter 3 in Jonah, will continue to get us scratching our chins, as Barry said in his first sermon. Now, the story does take a decidedly unexpected turn in this chapter, but I think that you'll find that this unexpected turn also heightens this parable's challenge to us. So why don't we turn to that passage together right now? It's Jonah chapter 3. That's page 764 in the House Bible, 764. I want to say hey to everybody that's online. We're glad you're with us today. And let me pray for us before we get into this passage. Lord, um, thank you for this story. Thank you for sharing what happened to Jonah with us. Thank you for the opportunity to think about you as the God who is so compassionate. I pray that all that we say today will honor you 
and will change us in some way to make us more willing to be obedient to your call in our lives. I pray this in the name of your son, amen. Now, as uh, we begin to look at today's passage, I want to tell you right off that for a number of reasons, I believe that the last verse in chapter two, which reads this, then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. That's, and by the way, the Hebrew does not say spit. The Hebrew says vomit, as in puke up, as in, it's not, it's, okay, so you got that part, right, okay. And then the first verse of chapter three reads this, then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. And I think they were originally one sentence. I'm happy to talk to anybody about why I believe this to be the case, but I honestly feel that there was, by the way, you know, there was no chapter break in this when it was originally written. The chapters weren't added until the 13th century AD. We're talking a long time after Jonah was written, somebody went back and put chapters in it. And what I think they did was they separated what was actually one moment in Jonah's life. And here's what I think you would have found if you'd have gotten the original scroll when the book was written, you'd have read this. The Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach, and then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. I'm certain that God had one thing on his mind in this moment, and that was getting Jonah back onto dry land where he belonged and immediately ordering him back to do what he told him to do in the first place. Now, we don't ex know exactly how much time took place between the vomiting and God speaking to Jonah, nor do we know where Jonah was when he got vomited up on the shore. But again, God only had one plan for Jonah, and that plan was to get him to obey his call to go to Nineveh. So as we begin to look at the first verse of chapter 3, we need to remember that Jonah might have only been a few moments from being in that great fish's belly when he heard this, as it says in verse one. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given to you. There's just one detail that I want to tell you before we move on, and it's the word that is used to speak of the Lord here is Jehovah as in then Jehovah spoke to Jonah. Jehovah was a name that only Jews used to refer to their God. The Jews are the only people in the world who ever referred to God as Jehovah, okay? Just tuck that fact away and we'll come back to it in a minute, okay? But the message from Jehovah was the same message that he'd sent to Jonah the first time he'd spoken to him. He said, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message that I will tell you or I will give you. And I think it's telling that there is no mention of anything from the past in God's message to Jonah. He doesn't go, uh, by the way, uh, why'd you run off to Tarshish? Or, by the way, uh, you know the only reason you're here on dry land is because I had to save you with that great big fish that I sent you because you were so disobedient to me. God doesn't bring up 
any of that stuff. And this is a great example of God being very gracious to his rebellious prophet. He doesn't bring up the past. He just says, get up and go to Nineveh. And then we read, this time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and he went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. Now, I find it interesting that the author tells us nothing about Jonah's thinking during this journey. The last words that we've heard from Jonah are his words of thanksgiving and repentance that Barry told us about last week that Jonah said while he was in the belly of this big fish. But we are told nothing about his thoughts as he travels to Nineveh. But ancient readers would have known immediately that the trip was a month long of walking from Jonah's hometown to Nineveh. The first readers would have known that Jonah had a lot of time to stew about things, things like how terrible the Ninevites actually were and the horrible things they'd done to people over time. And whether now that he was safely back on dry land, he still meant all of those things that he said to God while he was in the fish's belly. Oh, and something else, something about this verse. Some of the Hebrew in this verse is confusing. It can be translated this time Jonah obeyed God and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. It can be translated like that. Or it can be translated, and I think the, NI, the NLT actually has a note at the bottom, it can be translated, this time no, Jonah obeyed God and went to Nineveh, a city great to God. Now, scholars debate about which of these two translations are right. Some say all this verse is telling us is that the city was huge. It was a big place. While others say, no, this verse is telling us that this city and its people were extremely important to God. And can I just say that sometimes scholarly disagreements about translations miss the point. As is often the case when we have translation fusses, when two things are different, but they can both be what? They can both be true. And I think sometimes God does that purposefully. And in this case, I think it's best for everybody to settle down and simply admit that either way we decide to translate this verse, Nineveh was a great big place. Yes, and this big place was extremely important to God. And that's telling us a lot. It's telling us a lot about the heart of God. Verse four says this, on the day that Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Boy, that's one stark announcement, isn't it? Uh, no call to repentance, no hint as to why this was going to happen. The, the Hebrew actually says that Nineveh will be overthrown, overthrown. Oh, and by the way, the number 40, this is a number that is used many, many times in the Bible to indicate the completion of a specific task. You find 40s literally everywhere. It rained 40 days and 40 nights. That's one of them, one of many. 
Um, in the New Testament, we find that Jesus spent 40 days fasting in the wilderness. And that's just two of dozens of 40s that we find in the Bible. And you can be certain that Jonah, even if he was a bit nervous about what might happen to him during the next 40 days, he was more than happy to announce to this large city of many people that in just 40 days, God was going to complete his specific task, and he was going to destroy Nineveh and everybody in it. But look at what we read in verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. Now, this is the most unexpected response imaginable. How they knew to believe Jonah, we aren't told. Now, we do know from history that a short time before Jonah's arrival, the Assyrian army had suffered a humiliating defeat in battle. We know that. And we also know that Nineveh had just recently endured a time of famine. They were just recovering from, from this famine. And probably most importantly, right before Jonah came, we know that there was a total eclipse of the sun, and any total eclipse of the sun was something that ancient people believed was signaling something big was coming, and it was usually something unpleasant. And it could be that all of these things together had put the Ninevites on edge, like they were already thinking that the gods were out to get them, that something was up. So it could very well be that Jonah's message did not come as a, a total surprise to them. It could be. Now, we don't know, we can't be 100% sure that any of these things influenced the Ninevites' response to Jonah. But it is clear they believed Jonah and they took immediate action. And it's also interesting that the word that the Ninevites use to speak of God here is not Jehovah. They don't know the word Jehovah. Jonah didn't bother to tell them the word Jehovah. He didn't even talk about God. The word the Ninevites use here is Elohim. And Elohim is the name that Assyrians used to speak of the great God who ruled over everything, and that included all of their lesser gods. They, were, they believed in lots of gods, and the big one, El, or Elohim, he was the boss. And they clearly felt that this warning from Jonah was from the top, that the most important God of all was terribly upset for, with them for what their evil was doing in his world, and they needed to show this God, the one who was really in charge, that they were seriously sorry for angering him. And so they put on burlap, and they fasted. Now, burlap is also called sackcloth sometimes in the Bible. It's cloth that's made out of goat's hair, and I've never worn it, but apparently it's very itchy and uncomfortable. And people often worn it, wore it as a sign that they were in mourning. 
And this time, the Ninevites were in mourning over their past evil ways, what they had done in the world to others. And fasting, which is denying yourself food, they were doing this to show Elohim, that great God who ruled over everything, that they were seriously going about the process of putting things right. They were keeping their, their focus on one thing. We're not gonna eat, we're gonna put things right. And the language here clearly tells us that everyone, literally everyone, not just some, or not just a majority, and not just the religious people or anything like that. No, literally everyone responded with sackcloth and fasting to Jonah's message. And verse 6 goes even deeper into this response. It says, when the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. Now, Jonah hadn't said a single word about anything but coming doom. He didn't say anything about repentance. And yet even the ruler of this great city, somebody who I am sure wasn't in the habit of lowering himself in any way to anyone ever. Even he had the sense that an honest show of repentance might cause God to change his mind. Now, I am aware of all the things in th that the scholars point out in this passage that say that this proves that this book was written a long, long time after Jonah, and somebody would made it up a long time ago. They say there wasn't ever a, a king in Nineveh at this time because Nineveh wasn't the capital of Assyria yet, and they say there's no record of animals in Assyria ever wearing sackcloth. That was a Persian practice and that there's no record in the annals of ancient history that the Ninevites ever in mass repented from their terrible wickedness. I know all about this stuff and I can speak to all these sorts of criticisms if you wanna to talk to me about it. But the thing is, the point of the passage, no matter when it was written, was to tell us that even those that we believe have absolutely no possibility of repenting from their wicked ways and then honoring God not only matter to God, but they may very well take us by surprise and turn to God. They just might. And the bottom line here is that the Ninevites must have profoundly repented of their evil ways. Because look at what verse 10 tells us. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Now, we have no idea how God intended to overthrow Nineveh. It may have been 
fire from above, or it may have been an enemy from abroad. We don't know because it never happened. But what did happen was that Nineveh apparently, at least for a while, became a very different place. It became the home of repentant, changed people. And I just have to say, the repentance of the city of Nineveh changed the world for some time. It changed the world. Now, to be honest, we're never told that the Ninevites became the followers of the God of Israel. But we do know that they began living in ways that pleased the God of Israel, Jehovah, pleased him so much that he changed his mind and showed these once terribly wicked, evil people. He showed them profound grace. Now, Barry's going to get to Jonah's attitude about all of this next week. But this chapter introduces something that most of the ancient Jewish people who first heard this story would have never expected that the evil Ninevites of all people when they heard God's warning from Jonah, direct as an, and ungracious as his, his warning was, they repented and changed their ways. And if that wasn't enough, of a surprise to the Jewish first readers, God then responded to their repentance by graciously changing his mind and sparing the entire population of Nineveh. This, by the way, is the third time in the book of Jonah that, that we have seen God delivering people that didn't seem to deserve God's graciousness. In chapter one, the Gentile sailors, and can I just say Gentile sailors to Jews. First, they're Gentiles, and Jews couldn't have cared less about Gentiles. Secondly, they were sailors who were some of the scum of the earth in their mind. This book showed these Gentile sailors to be benevolent and kind, and yet the Jews wouldn't have cared about all that. They couldn't have imagined that God would save them from a terrible storm. And then we saw God save the rebellious prophet Jonah from drowning, drowning as well. Jonah clearly preferred drowning in the ocean to obeying God and going to Nineveh. But God had other plans, and he graciously sent a great big fish Jonah's way. And now we see God giving the wicked people of Nineveh an opportunity to repent from their evil ways. And when they repented, God graciously spared them from his planned destruction. And these truths would have certainly been chin scratchers for the first Jewish readers of this story. Hey, they are used to hearing stories that talked about God dealing harshly with their enemies. They had the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they had the stories of the exodus from Egypt. And they even had stories of their great King David's miraculous victories over the Philistines. And in all of these stories, the Jews saw what they wanted to see. And that was they wanted to see God stepping into the world and destroying their enemies. Never once in any of the stories of the Jewish past did God change his mind due to evil people repenting. 
And I can picture a group of ancient Jewish people sitting around a campfire having just listened to this part of Jonah's story for the first time, and there's a period of silent reflection as they're thinking about chapter 3, and somebody goes, so you're telling me that our God cares about people like Ninevites. And then I can hear somebody else later saying, you know, I can't help but think about how many times our people have been warned by God's prophets that we need to repent and we've ignored them and just gone on the way we wanted to go. And this story is a new one that evil people would actually listen and obey. I'm certain that this story caused a lot of eyebrows to be raised. And it still can. This chapter has brought me to a place of sober reflection. It has forced me to think about my own attitudes towards those people that I feel have slighted me or taken advantage of me or treated me with obvious disdain and disregard And I suppose it may be hard to imagine that we pastors who sign up for the hard, difficult work of dealing with people all the time, that we would have skin so thin that we'd be hurt by times that we've been slighted or taken advantage of or treated with condescension, but it happens. And I have to say, while it doesn't make me think of these people as my enemies per se, It can make me less interested when I run into them at Kroger in their, shall I say, their flourishing. The Ninevites turnaround forces me to rethink my hard-heartedness towards others that I'd just rather not care about. It reminds me, first of all, of the compassionate nature of our God. The God who, as Peter said in his second letter to the church, is a God who isn't really being slow in the way that he deals with evil in the world. No, he is being patient because he doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. This tells me that I should never discount anyone's importance to God or the possibility that they might repent. And secondly, this Ninevite turnaround reminds me of the teachings of Jesus. When Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid, then your reward from heaven will be very great and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. And Jonah chapter three reminds me in spades spades that I must never condescend to anyone, anyone, even those who are my enemies. They deserve compassion from me, compassion that mirrors God's compassion towards me. And to be honest, I can't even count the number of times that God has sent a big fish my way to save me from my own foolishness. And thirdly, this chapter makes me think long and hard about my willingness to do any of this loving and showing compassion. 
This is, these are difficult commands. Just like Jonah, I need to decide whether I'm going to obey this call. Am I going to show love to my enemies and pray that in their repentance that they will flourish? Chapter three tells me I need to do some chin scratching of my own. This isn't, as I'm often known to say, spiritual rocket science. The issues of the book of Jonah bring up, bring us back to being brutally honest with ourselves. It, it forces us to ask basic questions like, what is my capacity to love those who I believe are my enemies? And that's especially true in our world right now, which is so divided. It seems that we've come to a place where people seem unwilling to show anything but contempt to people who just happen to disagree with them on just about anything. People are making enemies everywhere, and this chapter asks us how deeply do we honestly want to see repentance in those we'd rather see destroyed. I know that this is a very stark example. But I recently talked to an older woman who told me that her greatest disappointment in life was the late in life repentance of the woman who stole her husband years earlier. She told me that the one thing that had given her hope in life was knowing that when she died, that woman would not be a part of her eternity. And now she knew she would have to deal with the other woman forever. Now, I don't know the pain of what happened to her so many years ago but I also don't want to bear the weight of that kind of bitterness forever either. And yet I am certain that that kind of bitterness is everywhere in the hearts of those all around us and maybe even in some in this room. My prayer is that we will do the hardest of things, that we will turn from our natural inclinations and love like Jesus that we will obey the call of the great God Elohim and, our, and that we will allow him to change our hearts. Because when we allow God to change our hearts, he then can change the world. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful for this chapter. I'm so thankful that you love us so deeply and that you're gracious to us even though we do not deserve your graciousness. I pray that you will make us people who forgive and who speak and live the truth in ways that show the world the light of your truth and that through your changing of our hearts we will be people who change the world for your son, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. 
Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.